and happy President's Day. <laughs> it's Monday, February 20th, 2023. We're normally here on the weekends, but uh, had some family business to attend to. So we have a President's Day special. And Val Atkinson is not the president. <laughs> maybe <laughs> maybe he should be. Uh, but, uh, but hey, Val, welcome back to, 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 to the deal. Thank you. Yes, sir. Good to be here. Well, you know, you know, Val. Uh, uh, seriously, though, uh, there is some presidential news this weekend. Um, a president, a former president, Jimmy Carter, who was elected in 1976, his family and his foundation announced that he's going to go into hospice care. He's no longer going to seek treatment for the myriad of illnesses he has. He's a 98 year old man. I mean, so you know, he he's due to have some some illnesses but uh, i i want to tell you a jimmy carter story first before i ask you my first question the first time i met him so i've met him five times the first time i met him i was at quail ridge books which is a place that you and i both like and and he was he was supposed to speak at quail ridge that evening i went there during the day to try to buy the book before he got there and and i'm in the book stacks and i look around and there's this little guy and it was jimmy carter and he was like hey and I was like, hey, Mr. President. And uh, he said, uh, that's a good book. And it was his book. <laughs> and and, uh, and I said, yeah, I wanted to buy it before, so I didn't have to wait in line. He said, you want me to sign it now? And I was like, yes, Mr. President. <laughs> he was like, you don't have to call me that. And he signs my book and we chit chat for a good 15 minutes. And then I did come back that night and he spoke to me again that night and he told people that I had been there earlier and bought his book. So that's my Jimmy Carter story. But I want to talk about Jimmy Carter, the importance of Jimmy Carter. Now, he, he comes in on the heels of the disastrous Nixon Ford administration, and then he is uh, defeated by Ronald Reagan. But talk to me about uh, the importance of Jimmy Carter and what people need to know. Well, I think what Jimmy Carter did initially, Ed, was in reinstill the confidence in America that the little guy can win, that you don't have to be some guy that is well known throughout the country and have gazillions of dollars and those kinds of things. But the situation has to be just right. And the situation that you alluding to was the fact that Rich Nixon had gotten caught up in Watergate. And, of course, Gerald Ford uh, pardoned him. So there was stain on both of those houses. Uh, and people were looking for a relief. And the way they wanted to say, we don't approve of what you guys did in Watergate, nobody from the Republican Party can be elected president right now. So here's Jimmy Carter, a peanut farmer from Plains, Georgia, that nobody knew. He had some background in the U.S. Navy, which he spent a lot of time. He was an engineer. But other than that, nobody knew anything about it. So they said, we'll take this guy over Gerald Ford and all of his experience in the House of Representatives and being president of the United States of America and all of that. We'll take Jimmy Carter to show you we disapprove of how you guys have been handling uh, your job as president and vice president. Yeah, you know, one of the other things I think about what Jimmy Carter too, Val, is he was a, a, a the governor of Georgia. Uh, now, uh, think about this. Uh, Lester Maddox had also been the governor of Georgia. Uh, and and, and all, the, all the governors and legislatures in the South up to that point, up until the early 70s, were avowed segregationists, racist, openly in the government, in the governor's office. And there comes along a guy named, like Jimmy Carter who could get along with folk, black folks, and and he knew the people from the civil rights movement or whatever. You know, he's a transitional figure to me. Uh, it, it showed people in the South that you did not have to hold on to those old tropes about being a, a racist, segregationist now, segregationist forever kind of person. Uh, so, I, I mean, I, I think one of the things that's unique about Jimmy Carter is that he didn't have that baggage like a lot of Southern people had. Uh, so a person like, say, Jesse Helms from North Carolina never could have been a serious presidential contender, right? Or a Trent Locke 
or people like that because they had these avowed racist you know background but a person like george wallace actually did fairly well but again he had a limit to how far he could go because he wasn't openly racist talk to me real quick though uh, so this other part about jimmy carter's legacy he only served one term and then the guy who comes after him ronald reagan everybody tries to pretend like he was some great president and again since this is president's day let's talk about how great a president or not ronald reagan was in your opinion Ronald Reagan was not a great president. There's a lot of similarities between Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump in terms of the timing when they came along and what the country was ready for and what the country could be used to attain by a manipulative person. And Reagan may not have been manipulative, but those who handled him certainly were. They had the right guy. He was a great communicator, it was called, because he could read a line. He was what they call a B-type movie actor. And uh, he, he wasn't some big guy in the movies, but he made a lot of Westerns and things like that. He knew how to read lines, and he had that little cowboy grin that everybody liked, and they knew what that meant. And all he had to do was to do a couple small things to get the right people on his side. One move that he made, Ed, that solidified the right wing for him was when he opened his campaign, he went to Philadelphia, Mississippi, Neshoba County, where uh, Goodman, Schroner, and Cheney were killed, murdered, and buried in an earthen dam that really sparked on the civil rights movement. He went there of all places to open his candidacy and he started and ended his remark the same way when he said, and I quote, I paraphrase rather, uh, you, if when I become president, you will be allowed to run the state of Mississippi as you see fit without interference from Washington. And they knew what that meant. Yeah. They knew exactly what that meant. It was the White Citizens Council who was organized and run by Trent Lott's uncle that invited him there in the first place. So it went around the country. That message went around the country saying, this is who we got. And if we put him in the White House, we'll be back in business. We meaning conservative, right-wing, racist, uh, white nationalist kind of people. And uh, that that's what Reagan was known for uh, beyond the uh, right-wing white community. And uh, he's dead now, so he'll never live that down. He'll always be known for that, whether he wanted that reputation or not. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Well, here's a clip of him talking <laughs> at the Neshoba County Fair in Mississippi, announcing his run for presidency. I believe there are programs like that, programs like education, others that should be turned back to the states and the local communities with the tax sources to fund them. And let the I believe in states' rights. I believe in, in people doing as much as they can for themselves at the community level and the private level. And I believe that we've distorted the balance of our government today by giving powers that were never intended in the Constitution to that federal establishment. And if I do get the job I'm looking for... <laughs> trying to reorder those priorities and to restore to the states and local communities those functions which properly belong there. So Val, Johnny on the spot, we had that clip because we've talked about this recently, you know, uh, this whole notion that Republicans keep talking about, well, the party used to be, you know, better. I don't think it's ever been good 
once Nixon became the standard bearer for the party, it was it was nothing but corruption. The same people that were in the uh, Trump administration uh, and, and, you know, the, the people that supported Nixon are the same people. Roger Stone, you know, I mean, he goes all the way back to the Nixon campaign and breaking into Watergate. I mean, all those same people were around during Nixon and they've always used racism or the you know veil of racism since since you know uh nixon so talk to me uh, last piece here about this the the southern strategy explain that again for folks because i think it's important because i think it's going to play a role in the next presidential election it it has been around for quite some time uh it i just want to give somebody credit uh harry dent senior was the originator of the southern strategy and it is it was designed and still used to uh, get on the side of Southerners who feel that they have been mistreated, uh, feel that they have been taken advantage of by all of these civil rights movement and people of color and that sort of thing, and play up to them saying, you're the victim here and I'm going to help you. So the Southern strategy was designed to, to wedge out a piece of the Southern white vote. And along with gerrymandering and voter suppression and those kinds of things, be enough to win Southern states. And it's been very, very successful uh, in making that happen. But, you know, it goes back to uh, the mid 40s when all of this stuff really started. When Democrats decide, uh, decided they could no longer be a part of the Democratic Party because of a plank within the Democratic platform uh, with uh, Truman that basically said he wanted to desegregate uh, the government. And uh, because of that, a lot of them decided they wanted to leave the Democratic Party. So they came in and decided they wanted to become Republicans. Same thing happened with the Tea Party in the 1990s. These were people decided that they wanted to become Republicans. And, and the old Democratic Party, the Democratic racists uh, from uh, the mid-40s came in and took over the Republican Party. Goldwater became their guy in 64, another president to talk about. Uh, same thing happened in 1980. They chose Ronald Reagan. Uh, in, 19, in 2016, they chose Donald Trump. These guys have a knack for choosing people that can help them spread the Southern strategy. And that is to use race as a divider to ensure that they get the lion's share of the white Southern vote. Yeah. I want to remind you, you're uh, watching uh, The Deal or listening to The Deal on the podcast. It is Monday, President's Day. This is our President's Day special. And we're talking about a president. And the last president we were talking about is one I don't like very much, uh, Ronald Reagan, but gets a lot of credit for stuff, which I don't know why. Uh, the, the Republicans had torn the country asunder with uh, Richard Nixon. Uh, Gerald Ford had to pardon him. Jimmy Carter had to come in and save us. And then he gets criticized all the time for the price of gas when he didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, but that's how it works, Val, which brings us to modern day. Um, we wake up uh, this morning and see Joe Biden had gone to Ukraine, gone to Kiev. Hold on just a second. Let's look at a clip and then we'll talk about it. As long as it takes is, is a, an echo of the mantra, uh, almost precisely the words we heard from Germany's leader Olaf Scholz and Emmanuel Macron, the president of France in, in recent weeks. And that is probably the most important takeaway uh, from this visit. President Biden not just addressing his Ukrainian counterpart there, but also addressing the people of Ukraine, addressing Vladimir Putin in Moscow, and the American people as well. Remember, domestic political support for this is crucial. And he was resolute. We stand by Ukraine for as long as it takes. Right, so. So uh, Ukraine is not the safest place in the world to go. <laughs> but uh, Joe Biden took a risk. He got on a plane. He went to Ukraine to meet with the president there. Um, 
We haven't talked about Ukraine very much on this program and for a good reason. And I won't go into it right now, but I, I do want to talk about Biden's surprise visit to Ukraine. What do you make of that? Uh, and how has he handled that? And then, and just in general, how has he been handling the presidency when he's under so much criticism about his age, his mental faculties, blah, blah, blah? Well, I have to be real careful Ed, when I talk about age and mental faculties and all of that kind of stuff. Joe Biden and I were born in the same month. I won't talk about the year. <laughs> we were born 20 days apart in the same month. But Joe Biden, I think, made a good decision. His handlers uh, worked with them to make a good decision to go to Kiev in Ukraine. Because what it did, it happened at a time that Russia is starting to ramp up their attacks on the country of Ukraine again. And Joe Biden is trying to show not only Ukraine, but the world that we are still with you. This was a surprise to everybody. Nobody knew he was coming except the Russians. They did notify the Russians that, hey, the president of the United States is gonna make a surprise visit that nobody knows about except you and I, gonna make a surprise visit to Ukraine. And we don't want any accidents to happen, okay? So that was done, but I think it was a great gesture. Now, and, and that's coming from a guy who didn't necessarily think that we should be involved in Ukraine, Ed, as deeply as we are. Uh, and I, I have a thousand reasons, and that'll take a whole nother show to talk about that. But my, my, my biggest concern is with people I call chicken hawks, these people who sit around, they've never been in the military. They don't have anybody in their family that's ever been in the military. Uh, but they want us to go to war. They're sitting around doing everything except trying to start World War III. What we should, the, the, the F-22s or whatever that we should be giving Ukraine. You know, whether or not we, how we should respond to the Soviet Union if they use uh Tactical nuclear weapons. You know, I mean, that scares me. Tactical nuclear weapons. I don't think some of those guys realize what happens to Homo sapiens on planet Earth if we have a nuclear war. I really don't think they understand. Well, the we'll, we'll, species will go bye bye. We'll be no more sapiens. Right. <laughs> the no more sapiens is what we'll be. Hey, Val, look, I think it's about time for us to take a break, and that's a good place to end. Um, when we come back, I want to talk about an issue I brought up on uh, our sister show on uh, Connections on Foxy 107. We had uh, Professor Kurt Smith from NC State talking about black land loss, how black families are losing land. And, and 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 as part of our Black History Month uh, continuing uh, efforts, uh, in this break you'll see Fred Hampton, former chair of the uh, Black Panther Party in Chicago, uh, and uh, and we'll talk about that too when we come back. So stay right there. We'll be right back after this message. Briefly, how would you sum up what the Weatherman SDS is trying to do and what you think of what they're trying to do? I'd say that basically they believe, that they believe that white people need to learn how to struggle, that they believe that these white workers need to learn how to struggle through confrontations. I'd have to say that basically I believe that this is incorrect. I believe that white workers have been struggling. They're some of the most violent people in the world. I believe that what they need is they need a redirection in their ideology and in their politics. They need to know who to struggle against. The workers need to start to begin to learn that their job is to struggle against the bosses. And until they do this, then struggle is incorrect. It's like no struggle at all. We say that if you don't struggle correctly, you shouldn't struggle. But you should struggle. We said dare to struggle and you dare to win. Dare not to struggle and you don't deserve to win. But we have to struggle properly. Attention all food lovers. Tired of the same old meals every day? Want to spice things up in the kitchen? Look no further than King's Pepper. Our website, kingspepper.com, offers a wide range of high-quality spices, seasonings, and blends to take your cooking to the next level. From exotic spices to classic herbs, we have it all. 
Plus, all of our products are 100% natural and ethically sourced from around the world. Visit kingspepper.com today and discover the flavors that will make your taste buds dance. That's kingspepper.com, where every meal is a flavor adventure. And welcome back to our second segment of The Deal. I'm your host, Ed Clark. That's Val Atkinson. It is Monday, February 20, 2023, President's Day. We started off the program talking about presidents, talking about President Jimmy Carter, uh, who is probably in his final moments of life. Uh, a man who we didn't even talk about this, Val. Uh, I told you I had met him a few times, and one of the other times I met him was on a Habitat Humanity site, building a house, when he was well into his 80s. Uh, another time I ran into him uh, when I was uh, with FEMA, a tornado struck his county, uh, and it struck the hospital in America's Georgia, and Plains is right down the road, and he happened to come to the you know, site where we were working and I had a chance to talk to him. And and then, you know, when you drove by his house in Plains, Val, it's just a, a ranch house <laughs> in Plains with some peanut silos in the backyard. And, you know, you could be anywhere in Georgia, North Carolina, you know, out in the country. It was not palatial by any stretch of the imagination. Just a humble man. Uh, something that uh, a lot of politicians don't get right they they i mean I, I clearly you have to have some charisma whatever to be president but nevertheless uh that's uh jimmy carter so everybody keep him in your thoughts uh during the break uh val we saw a clip uh of fred hampton i used to call him the chairman he was 21 years old val when he was assassinated uh an informant gave the fbi and the chicago police a layout of fred hampton's apartment they went in and supposedly there was a shootout, but they they only were able to find one bullet that may have come from a gun that was not a police officer's gun. Uh, I want to start there because I want to talk about how we've come a long way, but still have not come far enough. Uh, you know, so we're, we're talking, you know, we're still having black folks assassinated into the early 70s. Uh, and surveilled by the government probably still to this day. Uh, what do we learn from the story of Fred Hampton and the relationship of black folks seeking uh, justice and equality uh, in America? What, what What's the big takeaway from his story? I think the biggest takeaway is, is the actions and motivations of the head of the FBI, Mr. J. Edgar Hoover at that time. J. Edgar Hoover was obsessed with the Panthers. He was obsessed with Fred Hampton, even more so than Huey Newton, uh, even more so than, than people uh, like Eldridge Cleaver, the communications guy, uh, even more so than uh, uh, Bobby Seale. All of those people who were the head front of the Panthers, Jagger Hoover knew who they were and he was on their list. But Fred Hampton had a special place in his heart and mind. Fred Hampton had no fear of Jagger Hoover. Fred Hampton said exactly what he wanted to say and could not be stopped. J. Edgar Hoover therefore named the Black Panther Party the number one domestic problem in the United States of America. I mean, these guys are abiding by the law. They're feeding breakfast to kids. They are, but they were doing things that were not kosher as far as J. Edgar Hoover was concerned because they did not exude fear. They did not act as if they were afraid of law enforcement. They did not allow you to come into their community and take advantage of them, to kill them without accountability. They did not allow that. And that's the thing that J. Edgar Hoover knew that law enforcement needs in order to do what they want to do and maintain control in the Black community. 
And he, he, he knew that Fred Hampton would stop all of that. He was, he was having, as my grandson liked to say, he was having none of it. He wasn't having any of it. And uh, he became enemy number one. He was shot. He was murdered, Ed, as he lay sleeping by law enforcement officials that we paid their salaries. They went in and executed this man, assassinated him as he lay sleeping in the bed. Now, now what kind of system of jurisprudence, law-abiding citizens, you know, honorability, justice, what, what, what is this? What country allows that to happen? You know? Well, America. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just a beyond belief. These are the can't, and I'm looking for a word, and when I come up with it, Ed, I'll let you know first. I'm trying to find a word that talks about the desantiousness, and I can't even find it yet. <laughs> it, it, but, but it has to do with crazy, ed, this yeah. education period that we're in right now, where you're trying to hide truth from people. You're trying to sell lies to people. And uh, Governor DeSantis is pushing that. I know I'm disjointing and getting on another subject, but I'm trying to find that word to go back and put it, hang it on Jake Hoover, because he did that in pursuit of the Black Panthers. Well, no, I, I, I get it completely. I mean, it's the, the disinformation campaign by the federal government, uh, specifically to try to make it appear, though, these people were dangerous, when in fact, you know, the Panthers start out in California because. They wanted to end the harassment of the police of black folks. Well, one of the ways they knew they could do that is if they came armed themselves, which was completely legal in California at the time. And then some guy named Ronald Reagan, you see how we bring this always back together about some guy named Ronald Reagan started campaigning against the black Panthers. Uh, now his whole thing was they were dangerous because they were armed. Now, the same people who, who by 1980 turned it around and said you had to be armed to be safe, but that only mattered if you were white. You see how that works, Val? Well, yeah. we, can, we can turn this around if we want to. Uh, Negroes with guns, dangerous. White people with guns, safe. Mm -hmm. And now you go to the state of Mississippi just last week. You don't even have to have a permit at all for a gun. State of Alabama has moved don't even need a permit at all but when, when black people started to exercise that right it became dangerous and we had to do something about it we had to keep people from having these weapons so we we uh made it illegal and then now when people want some kind of measures on guns then we're the ones who get pointed at as being the crazy people. And we're gonna talk about guns a little bit later in the show, but I'm glad we had this discussion about Fred Hampton. Like I said, part of Black History Month this month is we wanna talk about those things and make sure, because I think the only thing people know about the Black Panthers is maybe what they saw in Forrest Gump, right? They, they think that the Black Panthers were trying to uh, sex white women and and had guns and were hold up, you know, uh, you're trying to start some violent revolution mm -hmm. when, when that's when when in fact they were feeding children like you said having free schools for kids because black kids were going into school not getting a good education no matter where they were you could have been in oakland as well as rosedale mississippi your education as a black child was suspect not because people didn't want to teach you we didn't have the materials, we didn't have the books, we didn't have the funding, we didn't ha have the physical buildings in some cases that were safe for kids to go into. So anyway, please, please, please teach somebody about Fred Hampton this month. Go learn something about Fred Hampton this month. Uh, I implore you because it's important. He was 21 years old when he was murdered by the FBI and the federal government. So anyway, uh, uh, again, you're, you're listening uh, to or watching The Deal. I'm Ed Clark, that's Val Atkinson. Val, a, another issue that I think is really important to me, and it has something to do with black history as well. Uh, I had a guest on the program, uh, uh, Connections, Professor Kurt Smith from NC State University. Now, Dr. Smith is in the forestry department and you go, well, why, why do I care about forestry? So hold on a second. Here's a clip of 
Dr. Kurt Smith from NC State. A different game, right? Everything is in private ownership. Uh, so much so that of that 620 million acres of forested land, there's over 400 million acres of it is in private ownership. And of that 400 million acres, and I apologize for throwing numbers all over, but I just want to give you a little um, feel of the metrics of the problem. 300 million acres of it is caught up in small family farm and forest holdings. So the majority of private ownership is in small family forest holdings. You really got as a small fragmented quilt of forest property by multiple owners. And then uh, you enter into this challenge. It's particularly prevalent in the South, 18 Southern states. Uh, and North Carolina is, has one of the biggest problems with this topic called heirs property. So Val, what I learned from Dr. Kurt Smith is black people used to own almost 40% of all land in the South. They now own 6%. <laughs> and there's a reason for that. A lot of it has to do with, you know, not having wheels and unwieldy estates and but the bottom line is a lot of times developers come in and they take advantage of that and they know that you can't find all 100 heirs or however many they are. They have a forced sale of the land. And then they get it at a bargain basement price or they find out that there's a tax lien on it and they go and pay the taxes and it goes to auction and they buy it that way. So a lot of these fancy developments with, you know, 600, $700 million houses were black farmland, especially in Eastern North Carolina, in Johnston County, in Wake County, in Harnett County, in Sampson County for people from North Carolina who are listening to this, but also in Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, what they've been, what we're finding out is a lot of that land that development is on, was owned by African-Americans. After the Civil War, black folks acquired land at a very good clip, but they started losing it as soon as white people could figure out ways for them to lose it. So here, here you go. Here's your history question for today, Val. You know, I always got to get you to tell me some history. The Civil War. After the, the, the Confederacy was defeated, there were a number of efforts to get black people land and, and you know, the whole 40 acres in a mule story or whatever. But, but General Sherman did uh, grant land to a lot of African-Americans, especially after what happened in Georgia, in North Carolina and South Carolina as the Union Army moved through. Talk to me a little bit about this the Civil War and the direct aftermath and how Black folks did with land and owning their own land and then what they tried to do to take that all back. Well, General Order Number 15 issued by Tecumseh Sherman uh, was issued primarily, and got to back up one point here, uh, as, as Sherman was marching to the sea, uh, as he rode through plantation after plantation, freed blacks would follow his entire army and he had to feed them and he had to worry about uh, security and presenting problems. And he wrote a letter back to Abraham Lincoln and, and other people saying, and, and Grant saying, Hey, you, you need to uh, help me with my N word problem. And he didn't say N word either. Uh, and, and of course he decided that there were some, uh, there was an island off of the coast of Georgia and another one off the coast of South Carolina that a lot of the uh, white owners had left the plantations and when they knew that the uh, Union soldiers were coming and he wanted to use that land to relocate all of these black people that were following him around. And he said uh, in passing and aside almost, and if we can find some mules, we, we may give them that too. But he initially talked about parceling out acreage at about 40 acres apiece and, and giving that to the people for, for them to farm. Unfortunately, too many of us thought that it was a decree from the president. They thought it was in the constitution somewhere. And some of us still think that today and they're say, running around hollering, I don't have my 40 acres and my mule yet. Uh, well, this was a general in the United States Army who issued his own little 
things. And as uh, generals do, they issue writs and decrees sometimes that are overridden by their boss, the president of the United States. Uh, and so it never did reach that level of presidency or being written into the Constitution itself. But that was the intent of it. And there was a lot of land going on. Where it all fell off the shelf, Ed, was with the assassination of uh, Abraham Lincoln. His vice president, Mr. Johnson, he, and Mr. Johnson was from Tennessee. He was not on board with all this Emancipation Proclamation and 13th Amendment and that kind of stuff in the first place. So once he became president, he reversed things. And he allowed all of those white landowners doing slavery to come back into power and take their land back. So that was the first reverse land grab. So the black guy wakes up in the morning, he's got 40 acres and maybe a mule, two weeks, three months down the road. His old uh, master comes back and said, this is my land. I got a letter here from President Johnson. It's mine again. So either you stay here as my worker and work the land for me, or you leave. I can't enslave you anymore because we got a 13th Amendment. And, and now people, they, they didn't have land, then they have land, then they don't have it again. And based on what you're saying, yeah, we made a few mistakes too. There were eight. 10, 15 sometimes kids in a particular family. And the daddy would die and leave a parcel of land to as many kids as he could. Well, the kids that were living up in Pittsburgh and New York and places like that, they just wanted to sell their part and go back to take the money and go back home and party. So they did that. And some of them didn't. And next thing you know, instead of having 640 acres as it started, the biggest acre owner may have 30 or 40, or maybe even less than 30 that you talked about in order to plot it. And we begin losing our land. We get into something called sharecropping under Jim Crow laws, where there was a vagrancy violation that could put you in jail. You had to sign a contract especially in Mississippi, you had to sign a contract with some white landowner or you were considered to be a vagrant and, and you could go to jail. So we went from slavery to landowner to vagrancy to in, in jail. And as uh, uh, Mr. Blackman says in his great book called slavery by another name, we went to sharecropping. And yeah. uh, all of it ended up in a loss of, of property, Ed. And some of us still have some of that property, you being one, I applaud you for that. And we are trying to hold on to much as we can here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and But, but uh, we had too much loss of uh, land and property in the Black community. And most definitely. And if you want to hear that interview, you can go out to uh, the website to deal with edclark.com. Click on the link. There'll be a link with the interview with Professor Kurt Smith from NC State, because I think it's important. He brings up a lot of points that we don't consider valid, especially that one that you were talking about, how we parsed it out with all these relatives, not thinking about what the implications are, especially the ones who don't have any intent on coming back down here. And, and so you, you get these land squabbles between families uh, and it's not good for us and it doesn't leave a legacy. Decide who you want to leave it to. It might hurt somebody's feelings, but I, who cares? Hey, if you're going to sell, sell it to your cousin. Don't sell it to some land developer. No. In the, keep it in the family. Keep it in the family. So uh, we're going to take a break and when we, when we come back, I want to wrap this up. There's been some more sh mass shootings in the United States, Val. I want to talk about that. I want to talk about Fox News caught in a lie. They, 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 it's been proven that they knew that that the orange guy did not win. In the break, you'll see another clip of Fred Hampton. Again, I really, really think it's important for people to know who Fred Hampton is and what he said. 
Uh, so you're going to see another clip of that in the break. And, and then you'll also see a clip about a black family in Colorado who has a ranch that white folks are trying to run them off of their land in Colorado as we talk about, you know, that. So all of that and much more when we come back. racism and harassment and two years of disputes. That's what two ranchers in rural El Paso County say they are facing from their neighbors and the sheriff's office. Today, supporters of CW and Nicole Mallory rallied outside the state capitol. Denver 7's Micah Smith was there as the ranchers fight for safety on their property. We came from Mississippi and Texas and Pennsylvania and New York to stand with this family. Black ranchers, CW and Nicole Mallory's story of poisoned animals, racist threats, and what they say is a lack of response from the El Paso County Sheriff's Office has resonated with many across the country. It is our duty to fight for our freedom. And their supporters are rallying here at the Colorado State Capitol. Not all cops are bad. There are men and women who are sworn to serve and what? Protect. To do what? Protect. To do what? So why haven't they served and protected the, uh, the Mallory's? Community leaders spoke during the rally, including state lawmakers. We want to make sure that whatever needs to happen for protection so that we can get to the bottom of it. I can't express from the bottom of my heart how much this really means that to see all of you out here. It's not about color, religion, race, gender. You know, I'm a farmer. I, I pay more attention to the weather. Than, than I do anything else. I just want to farm in Black peace. Black Panther Party intends to support anything that is disciplined, anything that does not provoke violence on the part of the pig power structure, because this is what they want to do. They want to kill some people. And these leaders are nothing but leaders who have customistic tendencies. They will lead people into slaughters. And we think that that's uh, it's criminal to the people. It's a crime against the people. Uh, I don't think it's really a question of violence. Uh, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a, we call it muddleheadness, you know what I mean? I think how muddlehead will they become is the question. How uh, masochistic and anarchistic will they become, you know what I mean? How much will they enjoy seeing people slaughtered in the streets before they get, get, uh, come around and get them a plan of well-disciplined, well-organized type of education demonstration where the people can be saved. We say all power to the people and all power is manifested in the people. We don't have any people to just throw away and throw their lives away. We think that people that throw the people's lives away in these types of counter-revolutionary folly, those people are criminals and they should be judged as such. And these people that commit crimes against the people, the people should try them and indict them and sentence them. these new revelations tell you about Dominion's case against Fox News? They're pretty toxic, Paula. They uh, they uh, are really the kinds of things you rarely see in these big lawsuits because typically in a defamation lawsuit you have an errant or maybe a hot dog reporter and a failure of a fact-checking system. These, uh, what we've seen, demonstrate a corporate-wide uh, since you know defamation because the the uh, critical constitutional standard is did they know it was false and uh, from the hosts to the producers up to Rupert Murdoch there's really vivid evidence that says exactly that so they're looking at a very serious prospect of a big verdict and a reputational hit and welcome back to our third and final segment of the deal. I'm your host, Ed Clark. That's Val Atkinson. It is uh, February 20th on a Monday. It's President's Day. This is our President's Day special. And we've been talking about presidents. We've talked about Jimmy Carter. We've talked about uh, Ronald Reagan. We've talked about Gerald Ford. We've talked about Richard Nixon. We've mentioned uh, Harry Truman. We've mentioned uh, President Johnson, uh, who was born in Raleigh, North Carolina, but represented Tennessee. Uh, we've talked about a lot of presidents today because presidents <laughs> and Joe Biden, because presidents have a big effect on us all the time. In the break, you saw some more Fred Hampton. Uh, and then you also saw a story about a black ranching family in Colorado who was under a lot of pressure trying to hold on to their land. I would recommend also that you go and check out the link for the interview with Professor Kurt Smith from NC State talking about black land loss so on and so forth so val let's 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 end the program here with um you know um 
couple of stories that 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 also have been bothering me. I, I woke I woke up this morning and there was a shooting in uh, New Orleans uh, doing a Mardi Gras parade. One person dead, ten wounded. Uh, earlier in the week, there was a shooting at University or Michigan State University. Uh, uh, three people dead, five in critical condition. Uh, wake up to another story this week. You know, more people shot, more people dead, whatever. You know, it, it's 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 starting to be. I don't, I don't even know what you call it, Val. I mean, it, it's like you know, I mean, it, 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 is there a way around this? Is America just a violent place? Have we just concluded that we're going to allow this to continue to happen? Uh, Mississippi, Alabama, and even in the state of North Carolina, they're considering getting rid of permitting for certain guns, not not going to check people to see if they should even have a gun, but just getting rid of permitting altogether. Uh, what is that about, Val? Because it's not about safety and security. It's not about right to keep and bear arms, I don't think. Are, are people just that afraid? And, and people, let me clarify, are white people that afraid and don't even realize the consequence of what they're saying. Well, it, it's not the average Joe on the street, in my opinion, Ed, that's driving this. These are the politicians and the gun lobbyists. It's the NRA. It's the gun manufacturers. The people that really have a dog in this fight, that have skin in the game because they are set to make a lot of money or increase or gain political power through this whole piece about guns. Uh, the average Joe on the street, he's taking advantage of what they're doing. And somebody needs to have the gonads to turn this thing around, do a 180 degree turn, and let's go back the other way because it's going incrementally the wrong way. And we need to do something, and I'll give you an example. We need to follow the Brits. We need to take all the guns away from everybody. We need to establish the fact that you can own any type of weapon that you want that you qualify to own. Even if you say you want a 50 caliber machine gun to hunt quail, fine, you'll have your 50 caliber machine gun, right? But every community will have a community armory, and that's where that gun will reside all the way down to your little 22 Saturday night special. All guns reside in the armory. Now, you want to put in an application to go get your gun because you're going quail hunting? You put in an application, say where you're going, how long you're going to be gone. By the way, all ammunition will be barcoded. I don't know how to do it. It, it, it as far as engineering is concerned now, but somebody does, all ammo will be barcoded. So when you find your shell casings, or dig out a bullet from somebody's rib, you'll know who bought it, and that sort of thing. So keep all of the uh, weapons in an armory, and someone even go further. Ed says, well, I just need my 357 for home protection. I don't like the way these guys look. Oh, you, you, you're afraid to do that? Well, look, we're going to put in a caveat in your home ownership insurance and your life insurance that you need personal protection. And we will provide a person to come to your home to protect you as covered by your insurance, right? And then we don't have any problem with that. And you know, just make it so outlandish and so crazy that nobody will dare to think that the American people would stand for such ruling. Okay, fine, that's crazy. Killing all of these people is crazy. What do we want to do in the middle? What do you want to do to stop all of this crazy uh, murders by guns that nobody else, no other country on the planet can get close to you in the number of gun death? You have more guns in this country than you do people. It's not necessary. We got to do something outlandish. Somebody needs to run on that uh, agenda, Ed to say that we got a plan and all to get out of the weeds talking about doing 30% of this and only, no, uh-uh, we're taking all weapons from everybody. 
So that's what they say all the time anyway, right? That what we want to do is take all their weapons. And, and I own weapons. I know how to shoot a weapon. I've been trained to shoot one. Uh, uh, I, uh, you know, I can do without it <laughs> if, if I didn't have it. Uh, I don't go hunting anymore. Uh, at least I haven't been over a decade or maybe more. And so it's not that pressing to me. And, and for those people who say they have to have their gun or for protection or whatever else, I think it's overblown. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's a uh, nonsense. I think it's silly. Uh, the only amendment people seem to know is the second amendment. You know, you know, I'm Val, you know, I make the joke all the time about the 11th amendment. I ask people all the time, what is the 11th amendment about? They can't tell you. Well, it, it's so you can't sue a state. And the reason why is because a guy from Georgia uh, wanted to build the United States government for some cannons and stuff he supplied. <laughs> and then so they made an amendment to keep him from being able to sue. So, I mean, it's it's those kind of things, Val, that, that people don't think about. So I, I challenge you to go look up the 11th Amendment but also read the text of a whole bunch of amendments. Um, you, you saw the 11th Amendment up there on the screen. <laughs> read the text. And I want somebody to be as exercised about that as they are about the Second Amendment. Uh, but one last piece on, on this uh, murder spree we're on in the United States, the sentencing of the uh, shooter in the Buffalo killings. Um, uh, he, he received life in prison. Some of the family members were obviously upset. Uh, one guy tried to charge um, the, uh, murderer, uh, of course they held him back and, uh, you know, you never want to see anything like that Val. You know, I mean, it, it's, um, you you're not going to bring those 10 people back that were murdered in Buffalo. But one of the things that, that was interesting about the sentencing, you know, uh, the, the murderer said, well, I, I'm sorry, but I, I can't bring them back. And one of the family members in their victim statement said well you don't know nothing about black people you just assume that you know all black people were a certain way and you want to kill black people uh the last piece of this val is there are some people who are still trying to start a race war they think they're going to start a race war when they don't even realize who are you going to fight it ain't that many colored people i keep trying to explain to people that we are a smaller and smaller percentage of the population every year as, the, as time goes by because Hispanic people and South Asian people and people from all over the world come to the United States. And the regular garden variety Negro, like you and me, are not half the population. But somehow I think some white people think that we are 50-50 and we're in a fight for our, their lives because of that number. Why, why does it appear to some white people that we're a much bigger piece of this population than we are? What, what's your theory on that? They're watching TV, too much TV, Ed, and they are watching sports on TV. Look at the NBA. Look at the NFL. Uh, look, look at your new sitcoms that come on. Uh, look at your commercials recently, over the past two, three years. Uh, how many more interracial couples are you seeing in commercials uh, or black people sunning uh, in, in the Caribbean and that kind of thing? Uh, commercial makers are really taking advantage of a softening of attitudes and putting these kind of commercials out there that they think will be more favorable to people of color. Some white people see that as, oh, they're taking over. Every time they look around, they got a mayor of a major city on and he or she is black. They look around and people in the Congress, the numbers are growing. They look around and you got a vice president that's black. You just had a president that was black a few years ago. They are afraid that they are about to be overtaken and they think that it's in numbers. They know intellectually that they are the majority as far as raw numbers are concerned, but it doesn't feel that way to them, Ed. They think that Black people, because everything they see and hear about 
has a black face to it or a brown face to it or uh, an Asian face to it. And that bothers them and they become fearful. Yeah. Well, guess what? Uh, they're going to have to be uh, mindful of it because they wouldn't have any NFL or NBA or Major League Baseball or whatever to watch if it wasn't for colored people. You know, we were all over the just most recent Super Bowl. Rihanna did the halftime. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, two black quarterbacks in the game. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, I, I mean, on one hand, we're very successful, Val. Uh, despite the fact that racism still exists. And, and that, and I think that's also one thing that they can't square is uh, how is it that there's still racism then if all these black people show up in all these spaces? And if you go to other countries, America does not have culture unless it is black people. If you go to Korea and you listen to K-pop music, it's, it's black music, black American music. Right. So so all, the only thing Koreans know about America is black American music. Uh, and it's really weird, but it's just a fact. And they're going to have to deal with it before we run out of time. Val, I, I did want to talk about one last presidential thing. And, and this is Nikki Haley announced that she was going to run for president. We'll talk about that in upcoming episodes. But here's this other guy. Uh, let's take a look at him. Republican Senator Tim Scott kicked off his Faith in America tour in Charleston. The Charleston County Republican Party hosted a dinner last night at the Citadel to honor Black History Month with the senator as a keynote speaker. I'm sick and tired of people telling me how bad it is. Now, I'm not here to suggest that things could not get better, and I'm going to work every single day to make sure that all Americans play on a level playing field. Scott takes his tour to Iowa next week as speculation grows that he will launch a 2024 presidential run. So, Val, that's your favorite, next favorite senator from South Carolina, Tim Scott. He's colored, but he's also a Republican. And he's on his Faith in America tour. He launched it in South Carolina <laughs> last night. And then he's going to Iowa and New Hampshire and all those places to see if people would like for him to be president of the United States. I can tell you, Val, this has happened to every black Republican who's tried to ascend to any kind of place in that Republican Party. You get shot down and get no consideration. Why is Tim Scott doing this? What's your best psychological evaluation of Tim Scott? Tim Scott is grossly uninformed. He really has missed a lot. A couple of those days that he was in the house doing additional research that gave him the A plus on his paper, he should have been out on the playground with Pookie trying to learn a little bit more about street cred and learn what the culture is really about. And in America, he's lost all of that. He really thinks, Ed, that these white folks that are clapping for him and rooting him on, that they really like and love him and respect him. He has no idea that a large, large percentage of those people and I won't say all of them, a huge amount of those people are using him to get maybe more black votes, but more importantly, to convince borderline Republicans that they are not a racist organization. They're using him. They use Condoleezza Rice. They use Clarence Thomas. They use all of these people that they can to show they tried to use Herschel Walker. He didn't make the, the cut. But they are using him, and unfortunately for Tim, unfortunately, Ed, he doesn't know it. Yeah, he does not. Well, we'll end it there on this President's Day. <laughs> the would-be President, Tim Scott. <laughs> uh, I think he's going to end up getting his feelings hurt, just like you said. Well, like we always do, Val, before we leave, you got to tell me what you're working on, anything I need to know. Well, I, I just wanted to say this President's Day, I wanted to list my presidents, and they were 
Truman, Kennedy, Johnson, and Obama, the most recent ones that I really think did something for African-Americans uh, more so than the, the rest. And, and I didn't mention Lincoln, but we're going to come back and revisit that at some other time, and I'll tell you why. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have to talk about that. Uh, I, I have mixed emotions about a lot of presidents, but I think the ones you named, I'll go along with you and I, as those are the tops, because for most of the history of America, there was nobody on our side. And, right. and that's just a fact. Anyway, so, okay, folks, this is what you do. Go out and do something good for somebody today. If you're off for President's Day, you know, uh, I don't know what you do to celebrate President's Day, but what, read a book. How about that? Read a book about a president. And, um, and come back with us next week for another edition of uh, 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 The Deal. And then uh, you can also catch me on Sundays on Connections. And then there's always stuff on the website, thedealwithedclark.com. So we'll see you next time. Thank you.